0: Are you trying to decide where to go in Spain on vacation? Mallorca is a very touristy destination, especially for Germans, so if you find that the local language is German instead of Spanish, don't get surprised about it. (laughs) Coming up, we get advice for enjoying the must-see sites in Madrid
1: and Barcelona, as well as getting off the beaten path. MIT physicist Alan Lightman suggests our brains need a little vacation, too. A break from being overstimulated can really boost our creativity and help us think.
2: They're really isn't as much time for play as there used to be. So I think that our children are suffering as well as adults by the frantic pace of life that we lead.
1: Dave Ellingson found the fjords of Norway are perfect for paddling and pondering. In a kayak?
3: It was an adventure in terms of the scenery and the culture and the beauty, but also for me a personal uh, ancestral journey.
1: Let's take a virtual vacation in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Did you realize that wasting a little time can actually recharge your brain? Alan Lightman explains why we all need a little unstructured time <laughs> a little later in the hour. Plus, guides from Madrid join us to help you plan for a great vacation in Spain this year. The last time we spoke with Dave Ellingson on Travel with Rick Steves, he told us about his epic kayaking adventures. He once paddled the entire length of the Mississippi River, and he paddled the Erie Canal and the Hudson River from Buffalo to Manhattan. His latest kayaking adventure was last summer in the fjords of Norway. That's where his great-grandparents left for a new life in America. Dave profiles his adventures and insights from Norway in the third title in his Paddle Pilgrim series. He's with us now in our warm and dry studio to tell us about it. Dave, welcome back.
3: Great to be here, Rick. Thank you for the invitation.
1: So explain where you went who you were with, and, uh, you know, what was the general itinerary and so on?
3: Well, the two fjords that my great-grandparents came from, the Sunfjord, the Sognefjord. Sundal is the name of the town where my great-grandmother came from. And then my great-grandfather came from Granvin on the Hardanger Fjord. So we wanted to see as much of the fjords as possible, but we wanted to visit those places in particular. So it was an adventure both in terms of the scenery and the culture and the beauty, but also for me a personal ancestral journey.
1: Sondal, that's a beautiful area. It's a lovely area, yeah. There's a hotel nearby called Valakur. Do you know? Did he go I to do, The yeah. Valakur.
3: We didn't stay in any hotels. We were wild camping. Yeah, but, uh, but there, see, are some, I, yep. I stayed in the Volcker, and i just sitting there on oh, their porch.
1: I just remember these black cliffs rocketing right yes. up. And, you know, the sun goes down early because the mountains are so steep and that's right, right above you. And the beautiful old painted barns that are on the docks there. Yes. And it's just, I just thought, I would love to get closer to the fjords. And, and that's what you did. You got as close to the fjords as you can get.
3: We rented kayaks and paddled each day, camped along the way, fixed our own food... It's called wild camping in Norway wild and you can camping, camp yeah. literally anywhere you can. And so we found lovely campsites with views and just enjoyed being out in the wilderness. Did you know where you're going to be every night? Well, to some degree. But, but you could just if you saw a little flat area with some grass, you could pull your your little boats up and you could set up your tents. You can. There's an interesting concept in the Nordic countries called Allemannsretten, which right. means all men's right. Or freedom to roam. Freedom to roam. So technically, you can camp anywhere, but you clean up after yourselves. You let the people know you're there. I and had so a Norwegian
1: relative that. come over to visit us here in the United States, and we went to a lake that was ringed by private property. Right. And she couldn't believe that you right. couldn't get to the lake. It's all private property. No, in Norway, all yeah. means roam. So you're kayaking with with a group of friends. Did you hire some outfitter locally to help uh, get you around, or how did? The, what's the backstory there?
3: Well, we talked with actually two different outfitters, one in Gudvangen and the other in Flom. And they were very helpful. We rented from the one in um, Gudvangen. They gave us some good ideas, but we basically had done our research and sort of knew where we wanted to go. And then when we needed to transport between the two fjords, they loaded our kayaks and okay. dropped us off at the next fjord. So basically, you rented your gear from them, correct? And they were happy to transport you, so you didn't have to portage. Exactly. That would be quite a port. That would be a
1: portage because <laughs> I know that people would hike up up oh, the, yeah. those from one little hamlet, they would hike yeah, up yeah. and then over the glacier yeah. into the next valley just to go to church. That's it's right. incredible.
3: Very very way. vigorous
1: people. Okay, so you're on the fjord in a tiny boat. I've got this image of these black cliffs hitting Mm -hmm. the water and then knowing that as far up as you can see in the mountain, it goes that far down. What's it like to be in a tiny kayak right there where the cliff hits the the inky water?
3: Well, if the water is calm, it's absolutely magnificent because a 2,000-foot cliff and 2,000-foot depth, it's gorgeous. So you're just still, you don't paddle, and you're just kind of there. Yeah, and you listen to the birds and the waves and, and everything, but... They say in Norway, the seasons, you can have four seasons in a day. Okay, so when it's glassy still, you better enjoy it. Yes, yes, because the weather comes
1: and changes very quickly. <laughs> that's why my Norwegian relatives, as soon as the sun comes out, they're sunbathing. It's yes, just indeed. like, right now, That's sunny. let's sunbathe, <laughs> because in half an hour, they're not going to be sunbathing right. anymore. Okay, so you're kayaking along, and then you see one of these bridal veil waterfalls, mm. and it's just scampering down the almost vertical cliff, and you can nose your kayak right up to that and feel the spray of the water? Oh, of course. Tell us about that, because that is one of the great experiences on the fjord.
3: Well, there's the three F's I call them in my book. There's fjord, which is the water. There's fjell, which is the mountain, and fossen, which are the waterfalls. Okay. And we went between the middle of June to the middle of July, because there was still a lot of snow on the mountains, and the waterfalls were at their very, very best. And Actually, there were less people, less tourists. So we were able to paddle freely without many boats to run into and to be well, bothered that's great. by. great.
1: Yeah. But I would think it can be crowded in Flam. Oh, for sure. But when you're out there on the fjord, I mean, there's a few more boats, but it's just you and nature. In yeah. fact, you wrote about coming upon a pod of dark
3: green porpoises. Yes. Yes. What was that like in your little boat? We were in, uh, near Eidfjord, and the water was this beautiful glacial till, light blue, and we're paddling along, and all of a sudden, the surface broke in front of us, and we thought, were we seeing things? And then the surface broke again, and they're called Nisse uh-huh. in Norwegian, and these porpoises are a dark green, almost a black in color. And there was a small pod of them traveling. And so we quietly just observed and enjoyed these creatures.
1: So many times you would just be still and be in the moment. Yes, yes. in the moment.
3: Yeah. It was different than our other journeys where we were getting from place to place. We wanted to savor the beauty, and that oftentimes meant just sitting and savoring.
1: Retirement has only meant there's more time to dedicate to the athletic and spiritual endeavors that Dave Ellingson writes about in his series of Paddle Pilgrim books. He's with us on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about his latest adventure, kayaking the fjords of Norway for a month in the region where his ancestors lived. There's more on his website. It's dellingson.com. Now, the kayak is a very small craft, mm-hmm. and there are some mighty ferries on the fjord. Mm-hmm. I've I've kayaked out here in the Puget Sound, and when the ferries come by, I'm just kind of get the heck out of here. You yeah. Know? What was it like sharing the fjord with big, big ships?
3: Well, I learned on the Mississippi there's barges, and I learned in the Mississippi and the Hudson that there are other large vessels, ocean-going vessels. So you give them their right of way. They don't see you, so you have to be very, very careful. But for the most part, they were courteous. We waved to the passengers on deck, Hmm. and they waved back. I bet. bet. (laughs) Now, in your book, you wrote beautifully
1: about paddling in the clouds. That must have been ethereal.
3: Well, you know, oftentimes we think, and there's actually a Norwegian phrase, um, there's no bad weather, there's only inadequate clothing. <laughs> yes, And we discovered, uh, once again, and we love to be out of doors... That when you paddle in that kind of weather, if you have the right clothing, you're literally paddling in the clouds. And one of the people we saw immediately had come in from several days of paddling in rainy conditions, and we thought they would be complaining, and they said, no, it's magical, you're paddling in the clouds. I love it. So that it. was a blessing huh? that sent us forth into the rain. Dave, after conquering
1: the Erie Canal and the Mississippi River with your little kayak, why Norway?
3: Why Norway? Well, my great-grandparents emigrated to uh, the United States in the 1840s, and we had family reunions back at the homestead in Iowa and in Wisconsin. My Uncle Hoot told stories about the ancestors, and I've become increasingly interested in my genealogy, as many people are these days, and so I wanted to see what they left and why they left. And so my adventure was asking that question what is it all about leaving Norway and coming to this country? And I, in my documentary that I've just produced, I have a line. I say, uh, sometimes we need to go on a journey to find our home.
1: Yeah. Now, this is uh, your chance to do that. And and it was different from what you had been doing because you had been on mostly on rivers before. And this Correct. was the sea. What's the difference for a, a serious kayaker from a river to the sea? I would think there's no current. That's a big deal, isn't it?
3: There's no current, but there's tides. Okay. So you have to be aware of the tide coming in or the tide going out. So when you go down the Mississippi, you're always going with the current.
1: When you're going the fjords of Norway, you half the time you're in good with the currents and half the time you're not.
3: You try to time it, but you can't always do that. And uh-huh. so there would be days when we would be paddling with the tide at our back, an ebb tide, but the wind would be in our face. And okay. so oftentimes you... Was, you that just, a, was that a wash then? Well, just about. There were yeah. times when you paddle hard and so you don't move very much.
1: Sometimes it's one against one or sometimes it's two against nothing or uh, nothing against two. As you far hope as... <laughs> for a tailwind and, <laughs> and you hope for the tide ebbing so you can flow with it. Now, the goal of your book was to paddle and to ponder. Mm. So paddling is sort of the the physical travel adventure. And Correct. pondering
3: is being thoughtful. Or what do you mean by ponder? Well, traveling and journeys can be a travelogue and, and seeing the sights, and that's wonderful. But for me, traveling is also the interior landscapes. Yeah. In other words, what's happening inside of me when I see various things. And so... I would, in my tent at night, oftentimes sit with my notepad and think back over the day and and the things I saw, but what effect did they have on me? What pondering, what reflection, what learning had I experienced? This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dave Ellingson,
1: and Dave's written a book called Paddle Pilgrim in Norway about his recent adventure kayaking in the great fjords of Norway. I remember when my dad had his boat and I was growing up in it, we had a little plaque on the door and it said, Oh, God, thy sea is so great and my boat, is, boat is so, so small. Uh, you had a few times when you were in what you call survival mode. Oh, absolutely. You're know, not talking
3: 10 feet waves here, but in a kayak, a three- or four-foot wave in a confused sea can be of concern. That's right, yeah. I had one instance where my rudder broke, and we were in big water, hard to get to shore. And so you just do the best you can. One of the learnings I've had on these expeditions, particularly when the weather is extreme, is that I'm not in control. And actually, that's a good thing sometimes. I think sometimes we humans think we're in control, and in fact, we're not. There's a a learning about humility and being open to whatever the adventure teaches us. And you can certainly learn that
1: as a 71-year-old kayaker on the fjords of Norway in a little tiny kayak in a storm. Yes. Dave Ellingson, thank you for the inspiration writing your book, Paddle Pilgrim kayaking the fjords of Norway. Thank you, Rick. I should say tusen Ja, Yeah, bell be Dave tells us about his cross-country kayaking on the Mississippi and Hudson Rivers in his earlier appearance on Travel with Rick Steves. Look for it in our archives at ricksteves.com radio. It's program number 536 from September 2018. If you need permission to just goof off a little bit each day, Alan Lightman joins us in a bit to explore how some unstructured time can be good for your brain. But first, we look at what's up this year in Spain with guides who will help you plan a great vacation. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. Perhaps being number two makes them try harder. Spain ranks just behind France as the most popular tourism destination in Europe, but it tops everyone except the United States for the income it gains from international visitors. Because there's just so much to see and do in Spain, We're enlisting the help of two professional tour guides from Madrid to prepare us for a dream vacation in Spain. Jorge Roman was born and raised on the Mediterranean coast in Malaga, today's tourist hub known as the Costa del Sol. And Nigel Mural is originally from California, but he married a Spanish woman and has been living in Spain now for more than 10 years. They'll take your calls at 877-333-7425 in just a bit. Nigel, what do we have to look forward to in visiting Spain this year?
4: Well, I think that Madrid especially is really polishing up its city. It seems like a massive construction work right mm-hmm. now. But I would like people to realize it's this work in progress that is going to really make the city beautiful. And although it seems chaotic right now, for people to come back and see each step of the Gran Via or later the Spain Square. The Plaza Mayor, for example, has been beautified over the last couple of years. Now there's a brand new paint job. Uh, nice. none of the paint is falling off before. And so... These cities are continually being renovated.
1: You know, all over Europe, I'm impressed by that. Yeah. It's a lot of money. It is, and it's, you yes. know, people have to pay for this. Right. And uh, in a lot of ways, Europe seems like a construction site. But right. the rewards are beautiful. Right. What did you mean by the Gran Via? Well, the Gran Via is the major
4: boulevard that cuts through the middle of Madrid. Mm-hmm. And it was basically initiated in around 1910. And it literally cut the city almost in two to connect the outer neighborhoods that had been constructed after the city walls had been torn down in the mid-19th century. Mm. So the Gran Via is this major boulevard where you've got several lanes of traffic going both ways, but the current mayor is renovating that, extending the pedestrian area to make it a bit more pedestrian-friendly.
1: And when I think of Gran Via, I think of Manhattan in Spain limited to one street. It's just one line of skyscrapers, and I love uh, skyscraper architecture. And by the nature of how it grew, it's like, this is the skyscraper architecture absolutely. in the 1920s, absolutely in the
4: 1930s, in the 1950s, and in so fact, on. One of Europe's very first skyscrapers is, is on the Gran Via. It's the Telefonica building,
1: and it's a beautiful walk for people absolutely. who are interested in that. Absolutely, and, and there's a lot of good urban energy. You're right. Jorge, when you think of what's going on in Spain right now, uh, you're going to spend a lot of
0: time taking visitors around in the next year. Mm -hmm.
1: What's exciting? What are you looking forward
0: to? Believe it or not, there are many people interested in gastronomy in general, also architectural, Mm -hmm. more and more people, and something that is coming up very much lately, which are what they call boutique excursions. They want to go to places where it's still not on the map, but they've heard about it. And the locals, they want to promote their own places. A boutique excursion. What's, yeah. what's an example? I, I would think that it's kind of uh, experience. You want to have hands-on experience. It's just they want you to be taken there just in a tiny little car mm-hmm. with no tourists. It's just mm-hmm. a tiny little place that uh, you might go into the only bar or restaurant of the place and have the local food that they have in there.
1: What kind of a reception is an American or a traveler going to get if they go into a little town that has no tourism
0: and go to a bar that's Obviously, really they're going to scan you from top to toe. (laughs)
5: You're going to be quite a sight. Are you lost in here? What are you doing here? Yeah,
0: what are you doing here? But uh, it's the general thing is that whenever they feel that you just want to get to know a little bit of the culture in there, I mean, their welcoming is incredible. So let's
1: say I'm in a little town, and it's possible. You can go to a town that has almost never seen an Mm -hmm. American tourist. And on the square, you're going to have a bar, Mm -hmm. and you can belly up to the bar. What would you say? What would you ask for? Local wine. That would be wine. the first thing yeah. I would do,
0: the house wine, yeah. I, you, house wine. You, you'd be surprised how good are the house wines. In, and that in costs Warsaw. just a year, two uh, euros, uh, two or three euros or something. No, maybe one.
1: You know. one it's, euro, it's just a little glass, a you know, maybe like about a couple of ounces. Let's say you want to really go first class and spend two euros for the wine. What uh, What's the word you say probably to Probably they don't have... They don't have, they on. have another one. That's <laughs> you no know, other option. You're right, because I've pulled off the road in the middle of nowhere just because yeah. I was hungry or thirsty, uh-huh. and you get table wine, and a ham sandwich. And it's actually quite good. So when we're thinking about Spain getting ready for the tourists to come, Spain is one of those countries that does have a problem in that people go to the same places. Mm -hmm. Uh, All the tourists just go to the same handful of places. And I'm guilty of this as anybody. I mean, Madrid, Toledo, Barcelona, Granada, Sevilla, Mm Córdoba. Those are the six big cities. Mm -hmm. So let's say there was none of these cities Mm -hmm. and somebody's going to Spain... Nigel, you've lived there for 10 years. I would imagine when you take off with your wife, you'd rather not go to a place where all the Americans are lining up to see the place. No, where, actually... Where would
4: you go? I have my favorite pick is Girona. Girona is up in northern Catalonia. It's basically about an hour and a half from the Pyrenees, from the okay, French border. Yeah, And it's uh, about 45 minutes from the Catalan coast. So is, is it part of Lava. Catalan? It is part of Catalonia. Is that exactly. like the
1: second city of Catalan? It is. It's, okay. I mean,
4: Catalonia has four regional capitals. Now,
1: it's interesting you say that because... Barcelona is one of the three or four cities in Europe that is actually becoming, not anti-tourism, but the local people right. are saying, hey, this is our city. They're frustrated with tourism. And the, the mayors are actually getting pressure to right. tamp down tourism. Right. Well, Catalan urban culture, mm-hmm. the wonderful high culture of Catalan, mm-hmm. you could experience
4: it in Girona. In Girona is fantastic because literally it's about a 25-minute train ride from Barcelona. It's huh. a fast train. And it costs maybe 12 euros. So what would you see in in Girona? Girona is like a small Barcelona. It has an old-town Gothic quarter. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's a beautiful Jewish culture that is um, obviously going back many, many, many years. And then you have this incredible food and wine scene. In fact, the world's number one restaurant for several years running is in Girona. Huh. It's just this great scene where you have none of the pollution, none of the chaos, you know, that you find in many big cities. And I would cities. think the prices are double in Barcelona. In it some can ways, be. Girona you know. is not necessarily cheap because right. it's definitely aware of its...
1: Um, Quality.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And so in that sense, but you're not going to be paying the same prices as in
1: Barcelona. It's hard to even get into a restaurant in Barcelona in a it lot of times. Be. It yeah. can be. Jorge, if you were thinking of Spain without Girona and without the top six that I mentioned,
0: what's a city you would pay attention to? No, a city, but an area, the northwest of Spain. And in there is the northern part of that uh, northwest part. The northwest, the yeah. Galicia. Galicia, but the northern part of Galicia, oh, okay. not the western part. Coruña is, is one of the Coruña? cities in there, but uh, it's north Coruña. Yeah. That part probably is a little bit offensive for Norwegians to compare that, but, I mean, I'd rather compare it with... Uh, fjords in there without the snow and the cold. So don't
1: tell Norwegians, but there are like fjord (laughs) kind of places in (laughs) the north of Spain.
0: And you'd be amazing because those are actually the mouth of the rivers. The seafood there is incredible. The shellfish. And not many tourists. Uh, and not many not tourists. Many tourists. In, that, in that northern part of Galicia. Now, okay, is I this?
1: I know Galicia mind. has its own language, and it's related to uh, Wales and Ireland, and it's Celtic. It's Celtic. Yeah, the culture is and Celtic. And you, you okay, have bagpipes, you have rain. That's right. Of <laughs> of the, the national instruments. The <laughs> I always think <bagpipes, laughs> it's yeah. where yeah. flamenco meets yeah. river dance. <laughs> <laughs>
0: kind of. <laughs> kind so of. you can
1: experience that. And is it okay with Madrid that people in Galicia
0: speak Galician's? Yeah, language. let me put it this way. When you go to Galicia, they talk to you in Spanish, or if they speak Galician, it's among them, but they don't ignore you. Their official language are both Galician and Spanish. Or so Galician and Español. That Correct. would be the two official, official languages. languages. Okay. Yeah. But if you're there as a foreigner, they talk to you in Spanish. In Spanish, yeah. because that's just sort of the more
1: universal Correct. language of business, that's, that's the language right. of travel. Yeah. But politically... From Madrid now, if you're a parent yeah. in Galicia and you want to speak Galician at home, mm-hmm. if you want to go to school and have Galician as the language, is that possible? They use both. They use both? Both languages. Oh, okay. That's right. Because it would be they cruel. They don't segregate. It'd be cruel to raise your child speaking only Galician. Yeah. <laughs> That's my opinion. <laughs> yeah. 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 Maybe not cruel, but maybe limiting. <laughs> where, limiting. Yeah. Limiting, where you want to expand. It's it like raising your kid languages. speaking only Esperanto. For example. Nice yep. idea, That's but like, <laughs> good <right>. luck, <laughs> you know. Hello. Our guests on Travel with Rick Steves are tour guides Nigel Miro and Jorge Roman. They introduce American visitors to their favorite things about Spain, and they're with us right now to help you get ready for a trip to España this year. So in Galicia, you have that um, opportunity to have both languages in your
0: culture. That's right. What about Catalonia? In Catalonia, in some of the places, they are imposing the Catalan above the... Castilian or Spanish. So that would be
1: the root of the general Spanish disappointment in Catalonia is, sure, they can be free, but they're taking it too far, becoming anti-Spanish. You are taking the rewards off my mouth. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. Because I, you know, I'm always for the underdogs and I'm kind of like, oh, good, you know, the little group (laughs) is having freedom and they're waving their flags. (laughs) But a lot of my friends are upset with the Catalonians because there's you could say, extremists in Catalan that are saying, we're not only wanting freedom for Catalan, we want to be anti-Spain. And unfortunately for Catalonian people, a lot of them are pro-Catalan, but they're not anti-Madrid.
4: Right. Mm -hmm. I I would say maybe being anti-Spain seems for me a bit extreme. To play devil's advocate. Right. Good. Just because I, I think that This goes back to becoming, really, it was a financial issue, and now it's become a much more emotional issue. And it's a shame. I think Madrid could have handled this better years ago.
1: The friends I have in in Barcelona, they are sad because they feel they are as pro-Catalan as anybody, but they see the the practicality
4: of staying with Spain. Right. And it's kind of like the vote with Scotland when Cameron went to Scotland and said, look, here's the financial reality of walking away, and it's your choice. The vote was made, and they decided to stay. And unfortunately, that option's never been given
1: and 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 the nature of these votes is all or nothing and it's too bad you can't have somewhere in the middle right i think bottom line for travelers is it's absolutely safe it's perfectly safe i was in barcelona before and after these demonstrations and a lot of americans were wigging out and no "No, you can it's a demonstration that's the it's an exercise of of freedom it's a it's a healthy thing and it's designed to get some headlines but uh you're not going to get yourself in any trouble This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking in Spain with two Spanish tour guides, Nigel Mural and Jorge Roman. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Julie's calling from Dighton in Massachusetts. Uh, Julie, have you been thinking about Barcelona?
5: Yes. I'm going to
6: Barcelona this summer for the first time, and I'm going with my family. Um, I have two kids. They're 9 and 11. And um, my question is kind of about... um, bike paths. We like to rent bikes, and I'm wondering if there are any um, bike paths along the beach, and if so, like which beaches that you might recommend, or is this even a thing there?
1: Okay, so Julie's going with her kids, 9 and 11 years old. Uh, Barcelona, love to take a bike ride, love
0: to see the beaches. Uh, Jorge? Actually, it's one of the easiest cities in, uh, in Europe to ride a bike because you have trails all over the city, lots of rental bikes around, so it's, you won't have any problem at all and it's really safe to, to ride the bike over there.
1: And I was just there, and there's wonderful bike rental shops, one right by the uh, Santa Maria del Mar, what is it? That's the, right, and yeah, The, that's the right. famous church in, yeah. in the... Um, Gothic section. In the Gothic section. Mm-hmm. The Elborn Church, the cathedral there, Santa Maria... Santa Maria, uh, Santa Maria del Mar. Del Mar. Exactly. And mm-hmm. a, a block away, you rent the bike, they give you a little map, and within five minutes you're on the promenade you biking are. under modern art That's right. and you're going out through the former industrial zone that was a wasteland yeah. and now it's turned into these wonderful medley of little crescent-shaped beaches mm-hmm. and yep. each one with its own personality. Be careful, Julie, one of the beaches, I believe, has less clothing than the other. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. Be careful. <laughs> that sounds like fun, Julie. Great.
6: Thanks so
5: much.
1: Have a good time. Thank you.
5: Thank you.
6: And
1: Nancy's on the line from Fremont in California. Nancy, have you been thinking about uh, Spain?
5: Yes, I have, and my husband and I will be taking a trip in a couple of months for a little over two weeks. Uh, we're flying into Madrid. We want to go to Sevilla, Granada, Toledo. We want to go to Segovia, and we will be going to Barcelona as well. My question and my concern is when I'm looking at the rail costs of the different trains, it looks very expensive. I'm looking at them. Those are, I'm assuming, one-way charges. Uh, when I'm looking at round trips, I'm trying to weigh that against doing a rail pass, the Spain mm-hmm. rail pass. However, I also read that you have to make reservations. So you're paying for the rail pass. Plus, then I'm, I'm a little not quite understanding. Then do I need to contact the companies, the rail companies that make reservations? Well, the company
1: is you'll see in each city a a Renfe office, R-E-N-F-E and that's the national train line. And my understanding is that the AVE train, that's the super bullet train that'll mm-hmm. connect Barcelona, Madrid, as fast as you could fly almost when you consider the trip out to the sure. airport. And then from Madrid down to Cordoba and Sevilla, mm-hmm. this is really efficient. It needs reservations right. and it charges more, I believe, at peak times and less at off-peak times. It can. Exactly. Uh, it depends on how far in advance you buy the tickets as well. So the, uh, the uh, wisdom for a lot of people is you can take the train faster than you can fly. On the other hand, I like flying from Barcelona to Granada or Sevilla because it just gets me down there in an hour. So think about that when you're, when you're putting your itinerary together. Also with a family, um, how many are in your group in total?
5: Uh, just my husband and I. Just
1: two of you. Yeah, it's expensive. To, you don't need to rent a car. You can just take the train. And what are your thoughts, Jorge or, or Nigel, about a train pass versus point-to-point tickets?
0: It's not really worth to, to buy the train pass, to be honest. If you buy tickets in advance, you get a good deal in the bullet train to go from Madrid to Sevilla and to Barcelona. So that's a
1: very good point. Spain yep. is pretty aggressive, as, as England and other countries, yep. about if you're a tourist that's going to go tomorrow, you're going to pay top dollar. That's If right. you can go online and mm-hmm. book it a month in advance, you'll be traveling for the same cost as the
4: locals. Right, and depending on your schedule and if your schedule changes, that allows you more flexibility, as Jorge suggests, If you book in advance. Exactly, to book in advance, but at the same time on your destinations, depending on where you want to go. Oh,
1: I see. You can go exactly where you want and when. But I think if your time is worth anything, it's really exciting to take that... Bullet train, the AVE. Uh, it's a beautiful experience, and you'll see how Spain is a leader in that
0: kind of infrastructure. And a little tip I just want to give is that uh, to buy the trains online, they sell them only with 50 days in advance. No further. No more than 50 days in advance. All right. There you go,
1: Nancy.
5: Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for I your call. It. Have
1: fun. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Spain with Jorge Roman and Nigel Mural. Our phone number is eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. And Ed is thinking about Spain from Lake Frederick in Virginia. Ed, where are you thinking of going?
6: I've uh, been to Spain a number of times, but I'm taking a sort of a non-traditional trip this time, uh, a guided hiking trip to the island of Mallorca, which uh, I, I plan to come a li- go in a little bit early and see some of the regular tourist things before we hit the trail, and I was looking to see if your guests there can enlighten me on some of the things I might want to... Uh, pay attention to. Uh, I've done a little research, and I've, I've seen a few things that look interesting, such as the cathedral there in Palma, but uh, I, th- I didn't know if they had any other uh, guidance for other things I might want to pay attention to.
0: Mallorca. Mallorca is a very touristy destination, especially for Germans, so if you find that the local language is German instead of Spanish, don't get surprised about it.
3: <laughs> I've heard that. I've uh, heard that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the ideal thing is, of course, in the city of Palma, de Mallorca, is the cathedral, uh, magnificent, and if you hire a car, just try and get lost with your car. Just try to find a little beach in here, a tiny little town in the, up in the villages, because don't forget, the destination is sold for tourists, so they are just taking from the airport to the spot on the, on the beach, and believe it or not, the inland of Mallorca is still pretty wild. For Very important tip, yeah. because the Europeans yeah. have this ability to land the beach
1: like game hens, mm-hmm. just lined up on a skewer. where they all turn over at the same time, working on their tan, and then they all go to the disco that night and something, but Ed's taking a guided hike, and he'll be enjoying the nature of Mallorca, yes, which right. will have no hint of this German tourism.
0: So they are walking tours in the city of Mallorca downtown. Believe it or not, they have um, renovated many of the streets around. They made the place very, very uh, pedestrian-friendly, mm-hmm. not much traffic in the city. Mm-hmm. And uh, believe it or not, that keeps the tourists away. Only the locals are around there.
6: Oh, excellent, yeah. excellent. Yep. One thing I did find out in, in my research there, I, it, it seems that uh, Mallorca is, is sort of an outpost of Catalonia, like like Barcelona. That that's sort of the primary language there. I believe is that is that correct? Catalonian Catalan is the
0: is the um, Catalan. Sorry, yeah, is the uh, primary language over there. They also speak Spanish, of course. Historically, it was part of the Kingdom of Aragon. This was Catalonia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, yeah, it's the primary language. So I didn't realize that Mallorca is part of Catalan. So you would have that flavor of the culture also. Let me just say a little thing here. It's not part of Catalan. It's part of the Old Kingdom of Aragon, and that's part of the distorted history about everything that we're talking about, okay. the Catalonian issue. But that's it's why time.
1: we need a guide when we go there to <laughs> understand yeah. these fine right. points. Yes. Nice. That's right. Ed, thanks for your call, and have a great time in Majorca.
6: Okay, thanks a lot, Rick.
1: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jorge Roman and Nigel Mural about Spain. You guys, this has been really helpful because when people go to Spain, you can just go there tomorrow and have a great time, but if you think and plan properly and if you put together a smart itinerary, Mm -hmm. you'll spend less and you'll experience more. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: That's right. Gracias. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you very very much indeed.
1: How much time do you dream about a destination before you settle on your vacation plans? Our next guest is a professor from MIT, and he has evidence that we all need to allow ourselves a little downtime every day to just let our minds wander. Alan Lightman is the author of Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine. He's back with us to recommend that you enjoy the freedom of some unstructured time. He recommends that we all waste a little more time each day, and he'll recommend that in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves.
5: Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm from London, and it's absolutely fabulous to be here traveling with Rick Steves.
1: These days in America, it's rare to see someone simply doing nothing. It seems that we're obsessed with productivity. And with our smartphones at the ready, even those rare moments we used to have to be just lost in our own thoughts, well, we find a way to make them busy. Alan Lightman thinks leaving room for unstructured moments is something we all need. And Alan's no hippie. He's a theoretical physicist who teaches humanities at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Along with being an MIT professor, Alan's written books and novels about science. His latest title is called In Praise of Wasting Time. He's here now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what we stand to gain when we find half an hour a day for the freedom to just enjoy a little unscheduled time. Alan, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, Rick.
1: What a challenging concept here as we rev up, it seems, more and more each year here in the United States in our culture. You open your book with remembering as a boy how you had those delightfully unproductive hours after school. And as I read yours, I was thinking about mine. Can you describe that moment for us as we all think about our childhood before we got uh, more productive?
2: Well, I grew up in the 1950s and 60s, which was, of course, long before the Internet. Life was slower then, and, of course, life was even slower 100 years ago when Thoreau lived on Walden Pond. But I remember walking home from school, and it was about three miles, and I went through a field a large field. It must have been 100 acres at least. It was just full of ponds and trails and trees, and I would just wander home. If there was an interesting turtle, I would follow it and see where it went. I would sit by the pond and scoop up some tadpoles and just let my mind wander, let my mind think about what it wanted to think about. And it seems like We have very little time for those kinds of moments today.
1: I haven't walked home with schoolmates for many decades, but uh, do you think kids today have that same sort of uh, space in their day where they can just um, be out there and gaze at tadpoles or, or follow turtles?
2: Well, I think maybe some kids in some rural areas do, but of course most of us live in cities and the pace of life in cities is fast. We know that the pace of life has been increasing rapidly in the last 50 years. Children after school, they have dancing lessons and piano lessons and soccer practices and lead a pretty regimented life. There really isn't as much time for play as there used to be. So I think that our children are suffering as well as adults by the frantic pace of life that we lead
1: physiologically how are kids suffering can you make a case that it's it's just not healthy for them to be I mean I think a lot of parents are driven by love mm-hmm. and, and concern for their kids safety where they mm-hmm. book them solid so they're not out you know rattling around in the in the back woods but uh, can you make a case that it's actually detrimental to their health
2: I think so about a year and a half ago Time magazine had an issue about the trend of increasing depression among teenagers. And there was a picture on the cover of the magazine, a very haunting picture that showed a a young girl, maybe about 15 years old, who looked absolutely miserable. Psychologists and sociologists have tried to analyze this trend of increasing depression among our young people. And they've concluded that one of the factors is the fear of missing out, the fact that Mm. our young people are plugged in To the internet, 24/7. On average, they send 110 text messages a day. They look at their smartphones every two minutes, and they're always checking to see what their friends are doing and measuring themselves against their friends. And there's such an avalanche of information on the internet, and and that's
1: exacerbated by all of the social media, where kids get to share all the adventure they've got in their life, all their good-looking friends, and so on. You have a Mm -hmm. concept called the wired world. You you refer to that. What do you mean exactly by that?
2: Well, by the wired world, I mean two things. I mean the hyper-connected world that we live in with the social media and the Internet, and I also mean the pace of life. The pace of life has always been regulated by the speed of communication, and the speed of communication, of course, has increased drastically in the last 50 years. When the Internet became public in 1985, the speed of communication was about a 1,000 bits per second. Now it's a billion bits per second. That's quite an increase. And that regulates everything.
1: It seems like it's making us slaves to this sort of, it just kind of feels like an artificial urgency. Everything has to be fast. Does it occur to you that we just become mindless cogs in this Mm -hmm. frantic global machine And we don't step back and and see what it's doing to what's within us and and our our souls.
2: Yes, we are prisoners of the wired world that we have created ourselves. Technology by itself does not have values. It can be used for good or for ill. It's, It's we human beings that impart the values to technology. And we're moving so fast, we're so plugged in all the time that We don't have time to think about who we are and what our values are and where we're going. I think not only do we not have time to to sort of check our our self-identity and our values, but I think that our creativity is, is harmed. There's a creativity test called the Torrance Test of Creativity that's been given for many decades, and researchers have noticed that the scores on the creativity test taken by children have started going down in the mid-1990s when the internet became public. We've known for a long, long, long time that creativity requires unstructured time. It requires time of privacy and silence and solitude, so let's just let the mind wander.
1: And in your book, In Praise of Wasting Time, you wrote how great thinkers and artists from Einstein to Gustav Mahler, they actually structured unstructured time into their into their lives because they knew that creativity needs silence.
2: Yes. Mahler uh, used to take three-hour walks in the countryside after lunch in order to get new musical ideas and uh, Gertrude Stein, the writer, used to take drives in the countryside and get out and just stare at the cows while she was working on an essay. Even Einstein talked about the importance of letting the mind wander, and that's what we need to somehow recover. First, we need to recognize that there's a problem, and then we need to make a commitment to putting more unstructured time and quiet into our lives, and it's certainly not easy.
1: Alan Lightman teaches at MIT. He's the author of Einstein's Brain, and he's written a TED book called In Praise of Wasting Time. Alan also writes about the insights he gained one summer evening gazing at the stars in his book Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine. You can listen to our conversation about that in the Travel with Rick Steves archives. Look for program number 549 from December 2018. Alan, you know, we hear a lot about environmentalists who are concerned with the destruction of our natural world. It sounds like you're concerned about the destruction of a parallel world. It's like we have an inner world that's under siege.
2: Yes. Uh, I think that most of the world's population has accepted the fact now that we are destroying our environment. And that's easy to document, the global warming and the ozone layers and Hurricane Katrina and so on. It's a little harder to document the destruction of our inner world, which you might call our our inner self, which is the part of us that imagines, that dreams, that wanders, that thinks about where Mm. we're going. But I think that the destruction of our inner world is just as catastrophic as the destruction of our physical world.
1: This is so interesting because this is a travel show that we're on right now. And when we travel, we go to different cultures and we can... Perhaps we can learn a little bit about the cost of our, our frantic uh, tempo of life here by going to lands where there's a different cultural treatment of time. I remember when I was in India, there's quite a big culture shock in India because time mm. is not money in India. I'm always impressed right. by how in the United States we, we even talk about time like it's money. We bank it, we invest it, we waste mm-hmm. it, we save. In India, it's a whole different viewpoint. And uh, when you travel, you realize... I wouldn't have ever thought that the work ethic was not the work ethic unless Mm I traveled. And then I realized our ethic is a work ethic. It's so interesting when we're raised, it's never a work ethic. It's the work ethic. You work work hard. My Norwegian relatives, they have a different work ethic. My Spanish friends certainly have a different work ethic. Have you thought much about that in comparing cultures and how we might learn from that?
2: Well, yes, uh, it's a very good point that you have, and it demonstrates that our attitudes about such a basic thing as time is culturally dependent. A few years ago, I was in a, a village in Cambodia off the beaten track, a village of only about five or 600 people that lived completely on subsistence farming. And every day, several of the women got on their bicycles and rode on a 10-mile dirt path to the highway where they could buy some food that they were not able to grow themselves. And they did this every single day. And through a translator, I asked one of the women how long the trip took. And she she got this puzzled look on her face and said, I never thought about that. And I was just stunned to see what a different relationship to time these villagers had that their day was measured by events and not by the clock
1: i happen to have a a little perch where i enjoy the sunset and i surprise Mm -hmm. myself that i can sit on that perch because my days are pretty driven i'm 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 a good bad example Mm -hmm. of what you're talking about but when i do take 20 minutes sometimes i see the sun's up there pretty high and i think do i really want to stop all the stuff i'm supposed to be doing and, and wait until that sun goes down but for me to watch that beautiful, beautiful performance and wait for that sun to set, it gives my whole soul just a chance to to breathe and to flex and to and to think. Yeah. And I, I just think a lot of us are afraid of sitting still, or afraid of silence. In my work as a tour guide, I've taken people to a lot of places intentionally to get them out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And I think the most stressful place I've ever put my groups in in our travels was at a monastery called Tese, which is a wonderful um, interfaith kind of monastic world in France. And the whole thing is silence. You sit in silence and you meditate. And it just, my travelers were very stressed out
2: by that. I have a, a friend who's a high school, used to be a high school teacher, and she started a practice where in each of her classes, at the beginning of the class, she would ring a bell and she would ask her students to be, silent for four minutes, only four minutes. And she said that it did wonders to their attention span, to their creativity, to their work, to their attitude, just four minutes of silence at the beginning of the class.
1: I can imagine that would be a little bit of an adjustment, but I would hope the kids would recognize, hey, this was Mm -hmm. an exercise that is worth a little a little introspection and a little thought. I think it, it shows itself in so many ways. How many people can sit and listen to a 20-minute-long piece of classical music these days? I I think a lot of people never even try.
2: Yeah. We've grown so accustomed, especially young people, to constant external stimulation that we just can't sit still for 5 or 10 minutes without it.
1: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Alan Lightman. His book is In Praise of Wasting Time. I think a lot of people can go, okay, yeah, that's all fine and dandy, but... What do you recommend? What can we do? How can we, as individuals, as parents, in in the workplace and so on, how can we combat this? Just like an environmentalist would combat uh, the destruction of the natural world, how can mm-hmm. we, who recognize this challenge and the importance for us to be able to be creative, to be able to kind of connect with ourselves, to be able to be in the moment?
2: Well, I think that in schools... There should be a 10-minute quiet period in each day, and it could be in the homeroom period. But sometime during the day, there should be 10 minutes where everyone is just silent. I think that in universities, that there should be specially designated courses where there's a reduced amount of reading, and instead, students are encouraged to mull over and reflect on what they're learning. Introspection. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Hmm. that everybody can find 20 minutes a day to unplug, to leave your smartphone behind and take a walk or just sit quietly in a chair. Hmm. Uh, I think that the dinner hour is another opportunity for turning off all devices and just having conversation. Hmm. In the office place, there should be a quiet room in every company where employees are allowed and encouraged to go there, of course, without any devices, and just spend 30 minutes just with their thoughts. And it would not be part of the lunch hour. It would be a separate right. time. And companies that have experimented with meditation practice find that their employees are more productive. Uh, yeah. They're more settled.
1: You know, as a tour guide, I, I keep coming back to travel because that's my world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm all about helping people have transformational experiences in their travels, to have mm-hmm. revelations, to to really have experiences and meaningful experiences. And something that we've stumbled onto a long time ago, without even any recognition of this whole idea of the value of quiet time, is what we call a reflections period where we would just, after having a lot of interesting experience, we'd get together and just take time to reflect on what we've experienced today and share these Mm -hmm. ideas before we jump Mm -hmm. into another experience, because a lot of people are going to just pack their vacation, just like parents pack their children's summer, with no time to reflect. And I really treasure those reflections periods with me and my travel
2: partners. Yes, that's very valuable and very smart of you to incorporate that into your travel experience.
1: So we can learn a lot from this. It must have been an a interesting exercise for you to take a break from your uh, theoretical physicist work and write a book about In Praise of Wasting Time. I guess it's quite a challenge to uh, convince Americans that there's more to life than increasing its speed.
2: Yes, I think that we're going to have to be confronted more visibly with the damage that's being done by not unplugging. I know that it took about 30 years before we acknowledged that smoking was bad for your health, and it took a lot of documentation, increased costs of cigarettes, mm. but finally we were able to change our, our habit of mind. And, and I think just as in smoking, we need a new habit of mind about the importance of quiet, reflective time.
1: But you're going against a a real powerful cultural norm and what you're proposing from an economic, from a capitalist point of view, I think could be seen as subversive.
2: Yes, well, capitalism has a lot of downsides, as we saw in the crash of 2008. So um, I think that we have to be careful in our embrace of, of capitalism.
1: This whole concept that you raise in your book, In Praise of Wasting Time, I think is a lot more important, a lot more fundamental than a lot of us realize. Thank you so much for your work. And uh, could you um, wrap things up with one sort of takeaway thought of, of the value of paying attention to this issue?
2: We're constantly sifting through the barrage of experiences that we have from one day to the next. And we need to remember who we are And for that, we need to reflect back on our lives, to remember things that we did. We're constantly reconstructing our self-identity from this kind of reflection. And to me, this is one of the most fundamental aspects of taking time for introspection and reflection.
1: So a life well-lived is a a life where we actually take a moment to know who we are, where we've been,
2: and where we hope to be. Yes.
1: Alan Lightman, thank you so much for the inspiration and best wishes with your teaching. Thank you, Rick.
6: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmira Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Maine Public Radio for their help this week. Rick produces updated walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find the latest ones in Rick's Audio Europe travel app. Look for it at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
3: At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Spain, for Scandinavia, Rick's new Iceland guidebook, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.